It's a joy to worship with you each Sunday. The uh, rain may be falling outside, but the fire is burning bright in here today. And it's a very encouraging thing to hear the voices of the saints singing of the glory of Christ, the work of Christ, the grace of Christ. And so now we get to turn our hearts towards the word of Christ. I'm going to pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Lord, thank you so much for, uh, as has already been said, just the, the joy of being together to celebrate you to reflect on your goodness, what you're doing in the world, what you've done in history to bring about our salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And also, Lord, to to give ourselves to what you're doing today, to open ourselves up to what you would do in our own hearts through the ministry of your word. So we pray that you would speak to us now and that we would offer ourselves, as Carrie read from Romans, as a living sacrifice to you. This is our act of worship. We pray you'd be glorified We ask that you would use us, Lord, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to be uh, stepping away from the gospel of Luke this morning. I'd like to ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 8 and chapter 9. If you are visiting today, uh, my name is JD. I serve as pastor here along with Stephen Parkin, who will be speaking later. Um, And a little bit of the history of our church is that God has provided for this church in an abundant way. Um, For those of us who are here, who have watched it all take place, it's been really amazing to see how God has not only grown the church numerically, but how he's blessed us financially. Um, A little bit of a spoiler, I'm going to preach about giving today, but it is not because we have a financial need. And it is not because this church does not give faithfully and, and, and consistently and sacrificially to the ministry here. So we moved into this building in 2020 and we paid it off like a year and a half later, something like that. Uh, We have right now funds that are growing in the bank as you guys continue to give above and beyond what the need actually is here at our church. And that's God's grace at work. Um, And we recognize as, as as the leaders of this church that this money is really God's money. And so we've been praying and we've asked you to pray that God would give us wisdom as to the right opportunity to invest this, to spend it in ways that would glorify him. And there's a number of ways that could happen. Um, perhaps the Lord would have us move into another facility. Um, we fit in here today, but uh, in the fall when the students are back and people are done traveling, it's going to be pretty full in here. And we've thought perhaps the Lord would have us move somewhere that, uh, to a place that would better accommodate weekly worship at Redemption Hill. We're also eager to continue developing pastoral leaders. We want to send missionaries. We want to fund church plants and all those sorts of things. We're eager to contribute to the ministry of the gospel in other places. And God has provided for us so abundantly that we really feel well-positioned to do both of those things. We don't have to pick between building fund and missions fund. God has amply provided for us. But we've recently become aware of a financial opportunity that is outside the walls of our church. It's not something that's here within the ministry of Redemption Hill. And the Lord has laid it on our hearts as pastors and and on the hearts of our leadership team, our, our deacons as well, Um, a desire to give to that need as a church. We believe that this would be something that would glorify God. We think this would be a good work that would be a good use of the funds that God has entrusted to our stewardship. Now, this opportunity we are going to present to you all this morning, it, it is something that's different than the budget we've already approved. So according to our church polity, the way that, that we organize things, we need to present that to you all. Uh, and that's something we'll, that we will vote on two weeks from today. So Pastor Stephen is going to present this need in more detail following the message. Um, So I'm not going to say a lot about it now, except give you the the general details. 
which is at our sending church, Countryside Church in Overland Park. That's where I'm from. Uh, that's where I first served as pastor for five years. Uh, that's the church that sent a team of almost 30 of us here to Lawrence, and they funded our church plant until we were able to be uh, self-sufficient. Uh, that church has had a need come up. And it's something that the Lord can provide for in many different ways. And it's not a, a survival crisis, but we think it's an opportunity, something that we might be able to participate in. And again, Stephen will present that in detail following the message. So that's all I'm going to say for now. But my task now during uh, this portion of our service is to really give a biblical context, uh, to give some biblical principles that might inform how we make decisions like this. So I just want to give a biblical perspective for how we should think through decisions like this as a church. And so the context of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 seemed appropriate. Uh, while obviously there's differences between that historical situation and our current situation, the context of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is one of churches giving to other churches. Um, and so while the principles we will talk about today, they do apply to personal individual giving. And so there should be application there. Um, really, the, the context is one of corporate giving, of one congregation acting in love and generosity to bless another congregation. So it seemed appropriate that this is a text we should go to. This is a place we should send, spend some time. And just at the outset, I want to say that no matter uh, what decision we end up landing on as a church, whether we collectively decide, yes, this is something we should do, or no, we should wait and, and, and choose to invest these funds in a different way, um, I think this text has something for all of us today, regardless of that outcome. I'm actually not worried about the outcome or the decision. And, and maybe you're not a member of our church. You're saying, well, I guess I picked a bad Sunday to visit Redemption Hill because I'm not a member. Or maybe you've been visiting for a while and you're going, well, I haven't joined yet, so I can't really vote. I guess this doesn't apply to me. I would ask you to reconsider. God's word is inspired by God and it is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. That's what Paul tells Timothy. And so I, I firmly believe this text has rich truth that is meant to feed our souls. So I'm going to invite you to jump in with me and immerse yourself in this passage of scripture with the prayer that God would speak to us and that we would listen. So we're going to be looking at, at different portions of chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, but I really want to focus on 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. I'm going to read that for us together. After setting up the historical context, after a number of different logistical matters that Paul deals with, he gets to the point. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul writes, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase to the harvest, harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ 
and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. As we read through many of the different letters in the New Testament, what we discover is that there is often this concern that comes up for the needs of the church in Jerusalem. The believers there in Jerusalem in the first century, they faced intense social and economic pressure because of their confession of Christ. Uh, Taxation in that region was oppressive. They had to pay Roman taxes and Jewish temple taxes, and it was a difficult place to live. I'm not going to make any jokes about California. Um, Also, there was a famine in 46 AD that also made things very difficult there in their region. So despite the fact that the book of Acts tells us these believers were very generous, they they were very quick to sell what they had in order to give and meet the needs in their own community, despite their generosity and commitment to one another, eventually, as, as time wore on, the demand became greater than the supply. And so the church there was hurting. The believers in Jerusalem were facing a crisis. And so the Apostle Paul, who writes many of these letters in the New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians, the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, and he writes First and Second Corinthians as well. The Apostle Paul, ironically, was a man who once persecuted the saints in Jerusalem. He was their biggest grief, their biggest opponent, caused them the most pain. But as God converted him, called him to be an apostle, and launched him into a ministry to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul becomes the biggest advocate for the believers in Jerusalem. He's the one concerned for them. And as he traveled, he and his co-workers, they, they labored to raise funds among the Gentile churches. They raised funds to send back to the church at Jerusalem. Not only does this reflect a genuine brotherly love and compassion, but as the early church wrestled with these tensions between Jews and Gentiles, all of this racial turmoil, it's easy to see how Paul might have identified this as an opportunity, that sending this aid from Gentiles to Jews might have helped alleviate some of the suspicion and even strengthen the fellowship between these different churches and different regions. And the church at Corinth was one such place where Paul had been raising funds. Actually, if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, an earlier letter that Paul wrote, he says in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Paul's been urging them to set aside a gift that would help meet the needs of the saints. And now we get to 2 Corinthians. This is a later letter. And Paul is anticipating coming and collecting that gift. And in Paul's appeals to the believers at Corinth, in his instructions to them, in his explanations of the what and the why and the how of giving, we find a wonderful portrait of God-centered giving. And that's really the title for this morning's message, is God-centered giving. You see, our natural mode in life is to look through a man-centered lens. It's a way of thinking, this man-centered perspective on life is a way of thinking that starts with me and ends with me. It causes me to really prioritize things that affect me and to think about outcomes and circumstances and what it will cost 
me. It causes me to focus on my priorities and my preferences, my opinions and my own judgments, my own wisdom. But scripture calls us away from a man-centered way of thinking and calls us towards a way of life that is radically God-centered. As Carrie read earlier from Romans eleven thirty six, from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. That is a radically God-centered way of thinking. Colossians 1.18, Paul writes that Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It is the centrality of the glory of God. It is the preeminence of Christ that is to be front and center at all times for the believer. God-centered thinking means we start and end with God. It means that God's actions and God's purposes and God's promises are at the core of who we are, what we believe, and what we do. God-centered thinking results in a life that seeks, imperfect as we are, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a way of life that seeks the preeminence of Christ and the glory of Christ in all things. And this God-centered approach applies to everything. It applies to how we do worship at church. It applies to how you go to work on Monday. It applies to parenting. It applies to marriage. It applies to school. And it also applies to giving. So yes, we do have a decision to make as a congregation coming up. And mankind, men and women here at this church, we must act. And people will be affected. And the need itself does present an opportunity. And there are logistics to figure out. But listen... God must be the focus. Scripture calls us to God-centered giving. And so what I want to do is draw out from our passage this morning four descriptions of God-centered giving. And again, there's a principle here. You can even set sort of the, the opportunity of this week aside. This is a principle, a timeless, eternal principle that applies to all of us, no matter where we are. Four descriptions of God-centered giving. And the first is this. God-centered giving, number one, comes from a heart that is stirred by the grace of God. God-centered giving comes out of a, a certain kind of a heart, a heart that's been stirred by the grace of God. If we jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, early on in this chapter, makes mention of the Macedonians. He mentions that these Macedonians, verse 4, will be coming with him. And he's hopeful that the Corinthians have the gift ready and that they won't be sort of put to shame and embarrassed when the Macedonians show up if they don't actually have the gift ready. These Macedonians, he's actually already talked about in chapter 8. If you flip back, flip back to chapter 8 in your Bibles, Paul holds up the Macedonians as, as an example these people are meant, and their actions, their generosity is used to inspire the Corinthians. He points the Corinthians to other faithful believers in whom the grace of God had been powerfully at work. He wants them to see it. I want you just to follow along with me in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but 
They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Macedonia was a Roman province. It's in the the modern nation of Greece. And there was a number of churches there. Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. And apparently the people of this region had been exemplary in their giving. And what Paul does as he points to these people as an example is Paul appeals directly to the grace of God that is at work within them. The word grace appears no less than six times in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We see it in verse 1, the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. We see it in verse, uh, verse 4. He says, begging earnestly for the favor of taking part. The word for favor there is the same root word as the word for grace, the favor of participation. Three times in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 19, he refers to their gift as an act of grace. And perhaps most powerfully in verse 9, he makes reference to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is what energized and stirred and moved these people to give. A heart that is stirred by grace. We see it really manifested, an example of it here in the Macedonians. A heart that is stirred by grace gives not as a burden, but as a privilege. We see that here with the Macedonians. They were poor. But they begged for the favor, the the opportunity. They said, hey, let us get in on that. We don't want to miss out on this opportunity. They wanted to participate in the relief effort for the church in Jerusalem. Their circumstances did not dampen their generosity. Although they were afflicted and persecuted, they had joy. Although they were poor, they gave above and beyond their means. How do you explain that? Where does that come from? Paul says that's grace. That is grace at work in them. A heart that is stirred by grace is moved by the sacrifice of Christ. We see this in chapter 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing that he would give himself for us. You see, our giving is really a response to and modeled after the gift that God has given us. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, I might have misspoken. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did that grace look like? Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul says that's the foundation for this glad generosity that we see in the hearts of the Macedonians. Our giving is a response to Christ's grace. It's modeled after his grace the one who gave himself for us. Simply put, the gospel produces givers, period. As we respond to all that God has done for us in Christ, it produces a certain heart in us, a heart that evidences God's grace is at work because we're being transformed, we're being changed to be more like Jesus so that our natural selfishness and self-seeking and self-preservation is transformed into a sacrificial love for others. We become more and more like the one who gave himself for us. That's grace. A heart that is stirred by grace is evidenced in the outpouring of grace. I love how Paul describes it in chapter 8, verse 2, that in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed, overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
See, those who are stirred by God's grace become channels of grace, instruments of grace in the hands of our Lord. He works his grace for us in Christ. He works his grace in us as he changes our desires and our attitudes. And then he works his grace through us, overflowing towards others. A God-centered giving comes from a heart that's been stirred by grace. That's a clear emphasis. There's a second description of this God-centered giving. God-centered giving also seeks the smile of God. It seeks the smile of God. Look in chapter 9. We're going to jump in here to sort of the the meat of of Paul's teaching on this topic. The point is this, verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. Paul appeals here to the Corinthian church and he encourages them to jump on board and participate in this relief effort by reminding them that God is pleased by glad generosity. God loves a cheerful giver. And again, the the Macedonians are a great example of this cheerful giving. Their generosity overflowed. It wasn't something Paul had to squeeze out of them. It wasn't something that was extracted. It naturally overflowed the bounds of their heart. Their generosity, as we saw in chapter 8, was sacrificial. They gave not just according to their means, but even beyond it. Their generosity was expressed in genuine love for others. See this in chapter 8, verse 8, as as Paul urges these Corinthians. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. A genuine kind of love. Generosity is eager and willing. Verse 6 and 7 here. Paul wants us to give as we decided in our hearts, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, but willingly, because God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I'm guessing that if you spent any time at all in the church, if you've spent any time at all studying scripture, that that phrase, God loves a cheerful giver, is probably one you've heard a lot. It's a very well-known statement, and it should be. And we often focus on the attitude that we, as man, must have, that we need to be cheerful, that we need to be be voluntary, not reluctant or stingy. And that is important to emphasize that aspect of this statement. But I actually want to focus in on on the last part of Paul's phrase. Ponder this. And not, not just focusing on what kind of attitude we need to have, but focus on the heart of God. God loves it when his children demonstrate glad generosity. Although we are sinful, although we are imperfect, although we are weak, listen, when God's grace bears fruit in our hearts and it produces a glad generosity, the Lord smiles. That pleases him. And there's a lot of churches, I think there's two kinds of churches, some churches that never talk about money and some churches that always talk about money. We probably fall into the not talking about it enough category most of the time. But if you've ever heard people trying to raise money for a need, it's interesting the, the persuasion techniques that people often use. Notice here that Paul does not highlight the suffering of the saints in Jerusalem. He doesn't talk about any specifics, although he could have. He didn't bring any slideshow with starving children and then ask you to give. He didn't even focus on their need. Also, Paul didn't flex his authority as an apostle. In fact, he's like bending over backwards to make sure they know, I'm not commanding you. I I want you to do this voluntarily. But he could have 
As an apostle of Jesus Christ, he could have stood up, stood up and said, if you love Jesus, you will do this. If you recognize my authority as an apostle, then you're going to do this. That's not what he did. He didn't exercise his apostolic authority. He also didn't crunch the numbers and appeal to them on a rational, mathematical basis. He didn't come with a very specific dollar amount and saying, look, your overage this month was this, and their, their shortfall was this, and if you just cut back on three coffees a week and four months, we can make this. He didn't come to them with that sort of rational appeal. No, how did Paul appeal to them? What was his persuasion technique? He says, God loves a cheerful giver. A God-centered heart gives because it seeks the smile of God. That's the heart of God-centered giving. Paul simply points them to their God and says, this is what pleases him. And this is a powerful motivation for those who love God and have been loved by God. God-centered giving wants nothing more than to bring a smile to the face of our Father. God's children take delight in knowing that our Father is pleased. That's the heart of God-centered giving. It is, first of all, stirred by grace, but secondly, it seeks the smile of God. There's a third description of God-centered giving. God-centered giving depends on the provision of God. It depends on the provision of God. Look in verses 8 through 11. I love this. Paul says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He's quoting an Old Testament psalm about a righteous man who demonstrates this generosity. And what is it that allows the righteous man to give like this? Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. God-centered giving is an act of faith that actually depends on the provision of God. This glad generosity that God delights to see is really an expression of faith. It's a, it's a practical demonstration that we trust God. It is literally putting our money where our mouth is to say that we believe God will meet our needs. It's being confident God will provide, that he will energize our giving, that he will sustain our giving, that he will meet our needs tomorrow, which means we can meet someone else's needs today. Paul mentions here in verse 10, bread for food, that God's the one who provides bread for food. And I can't help but think back to the Old Testament as God fed his people with bread from heaven, manna that mysterious substance that came down from the sky every morning to feed the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. If you remember back, God told them that six days a week they're supposed to gather in the morning, but only enough for one day. Some people didn't trust God that he would provide it on the next day, so they tried to gather more. It would always go bad. It would breed worms. It would stink. And it was a rebuke to them that they didn't trust that God would provide the next day. But on the sixth day, they're supposed to gather twice as much because there would be no bread on the Sabbath. They were to rest, not go gather food. And this also was an expression of faith that on this day, God would preserve the manna. It would last instead of stinking like the other days. And so this daily rhythm of trusting God to meet their needs, the children of Israel learned that every day for 40 years. That's important. That must be a lesson that God really wants us to get. If for 40 years, he reinforced this, trust me, 
trust me each day. Trust me to provide for your needs. Trust me to provide for you today and trust me to provide for you tomorrow. So Paul writes, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. This is an expression of faith, depending on God to provide for our needs. You see, apart from faith, there will be no giving. Apart from faith in God, you'll put your faith in something else, your faith in your own resourcefulness, your faith in your own savings, your faith in your own ability to go out and generate income, your faith in another person or another institution or a government or a retirement plan, whatever it may be. You're gonna trust in something. Paul calls us to trust in God. God-centered giving happens when our eyes are focused on God, when our hearts believe in his promises, when, when our, our, our desires are wrapped up with his purposes and desires. That's faith. And there's two things we have to believe. First of all, we have to believe that God is able to provide. You will either say, yes, I believe that, or no, I don't believe that. Is God able to provide? Look in verse 8. This is a word you can circle. And God is able. God is able. And look at what he's able to do. He's able to make all grace abound to you. Both physical grace and providing for what you need and spiritual grace to give you the faith, to give you the trust, to, to give you the love for others and the spirit of generosity. God is able to provide all the grace you need. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency There will be no lack. You will have enough. So that having all sufficiency in all things, that there's no limits. At all times, there's no exceptions. You may abound in every good work. This is the provision of God. God is able to provide everything we could possibly need for every possible situation at every possible moment so that we can do the good works that he has appointed for us to do. These good works are his divine will. The things that God delights that we do, he empowers us towards that, enabling us to do everything that he commands. We have to believe that God is able. Secondly, we have to believe that God is faithful. See, some people say, well, I know God can do that, but I'm not convinced that God will. We have to believe that God is faithful to provide. Note the little verb, will, or the little modifier, will, in verse 11. He says, you will be enriched. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. He says, you will be enriched. Do you get the emphasis here? All sufficiency, all grace, at all times, for everything, for every good work, and God will do this. I don't think Paul could make it any clearer. This is a comprehensive and emphatic declaration of God's perfect provision for his saints. God is able and God is faithful. The question is, will we trust him? Do you trust him? God-centered giving grasps these promises and steps out in faith, giving with glad generosity because of who God is. Because of who God is. You see, giving is is not just some robotic duty. It's not like the automatic withdrawal that hits your bank account when your car insurance comes due. No, it is an act of faith. An act of faith that seeks the smile of God. 
an act of faith that seeks the smile of God because you have been stirred by and compelled by God's grace. See, this kind of giving that pleases God is God-centered in every way. It is from him, through him, and it is also to him. There's one more description of God-centered giving. God-centered giving, number four, results in worship toward God. Look in verse 11. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us, get this, will produce thanksgiving to God. That's really what Paul is after. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs to the saints, which is great, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you, and while they pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And then Paul actually starts worshiping God. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Listen, there's a reason that Paul ends up here. This is the end goal. God-centered giving results in worship toward God. This whole process of hearts that are stirred by grace and and, and a heart that seeks the smile of God and, and a heart that trusts God to provide, the end product is more than just meeting needs. The end product is glory. It is worship. It is praise for God. This is really about worship, and friends, that is why we exist. You and I exist for the glory of God. This is what we were made for, Isaiah 43, 7. God says, everyone who is called by name, by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God made us for his glory. He also saved us for his glory. We see this repetition in Ephesians chapter one, that he saved us to the praise of his glorious grace. You were created for God's glory. You were saved for God's glory. And the glory of God is the goal of our good works. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God-centered giving results in worship towards God. When God's people give generously, here's what happens. God is seen to be good. God is seen by others to be powerful, to be gracious, to be faithful. And what happens is the volume knob on the hearts of God's people gets turned up and they overflow with thanksgiving and worship to their Savior. It produces, we see this in verse 11, thanksgiving to God. Thanksgiving to God. They will thank God, not just for the gift. They will thank God for his work of grace in the hearts of others. They will thank God that he keeps his promises. They will thank God that the gospel is bringing about transformation. We see this in verse 13, that this submission comes from their confession of the gospel of Christ. They're saying those people really do believe in the gospel. They really have been transformed because what they're doing makes no sense apart from a radical work of God's grace. And all that results in thanksgiving for God. Verse 12 shows us this is about more than just meeting needs. The ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, as good and important as that is, but is also overflowing in these thanksgivings to God. Jesus reminds us, he says, the poor you will always have with you. There's actually never going to be an end to the needs, and we can't meet all of them. And we're not even called to. But at every moment, our priority is the glory of God. 
which means that as we give, our goal is not just to alleviate needs as much as we may want to. Our primary ultimate goal is always the glory of God. God deserves glory. That's why we give. Just thinking about the outworking of this grace in the church and the potential worship and praise that that could one day abound if they were to do this, it causes Paul to burst out in thanksgiving. Verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. He closes this whole discussion with a reminder of what it is that God has done for us. He says, consider the gift of God. The gift of his son has brought about a massive change in the hearts of sinners. So that what's starting to happen here as Paul travels throughout these Gentile regions is that Gentiles are gladly meeting the needs of Jews in Jerusalem because they believe in the same gospel. Because they consider each other family. And this evidence of grace at work just confirms the power of the gospel. It confirms the power of God's grace and it causes Paul to rejoice that God would do this work in us. So Paul ends this whole thing on a note of worship. So friends, when we give, we do seek to meet needs, but that's not the main goal. It's simply not. When we give, we are blessed. There's a reward for us, but that's not the main goal. When we give, God is pleased. That's the goal. And when we give, God is praised. He is worshiped in the hearts of others. And that is the goal. That people would catch a glimpse of how good and gracious and faithful and powerful our God is. That should be the heartbeat of the church. That others would come to love Christ more and trust Christ more and treasure Christ more. That's the aim of God-centered giving. So yes, there are needs out there. There always will be. And to be honest, God is going to meet those needs. He's going to meet them one way or another. The question is, do we want to get in on it? Do we have the attitude of the Macedonians that is eager to look for opportunities, whatever they may be, to serve the Lord in this way, to bless others in this way, because our hearts are stirred by grace, because we seek the smile of our Father, because we trust God's provision for us tomorrow, and we eagerly long to see God worshiped and glorified. Again, there's a reason we're bringing all this up. And I just want to clarify because you might feel a little bit strong-armed. Okay, J.D. just preached on giving. I guess now we have no option except to say yes to whatever it is they're going to present next. But that's honestly not our heart. And I can't make you believe me. I'm just asking you to believe me that I am burdened today not for this need at Countryside. I'm confident God will meet their need. What I'm burdened for is that our church would have this heart. That's what I'm burdened for. Obviously, the needs are a little bit different in Johnson County, Kansas, than they were in Jerusalem in the first century. It's not a matter of survival or necessity. And again, just to let you know, if the Lord wants us as a church to do this, then I'm confident he will lay it collectively on the hearts of this congregation, and we'll be of one mind, and it'll make sense to do it. And if the Lord doesn't lead all of us that way, I'm really fine with that. I'm totally okay if we decide, you know what, we don't feel the Lord's leading to give to that need today. But here's what would not be okay. What would not be okay is if we don't have this heart. What would not be okay is if the culture of this congregation is not one that is God-centered, that eagerly desires the favor and the grace of participation. The reason I'm excited about this proposal is not because it'll even meet their need. The reason I'm excited about it is because of what it would say about this church. It would be us making a decision that this is the kind of people we want to be. 
And here's the thing, we can be this kind of people with other needs, and there will be other things that come up. So there's an opportunity here today, yes, but I hope you hear our heart, is that our, my desire as a pastor right now is to, to stir up and to stimulate you towards love and good works, like Hebrews 12 tells us. It tells us. So as those who have received an indescribable gift, I hope that your heart has been stirred by God's grace today, that you would seek the smile of God, trust his provision, and be excited about the, the possibility, the opportunity to give a gift that might result in many thanksgivings to God. So I'm going to pray, we're going to sing together, and then I'll invite Pastor Stephen to come up. Lord, we do thank you um, for that indescribable gift of Christ. There's no greater gift you could give than to give us yourself, and that's what you've done. There's nothing more valuable than Christ. You can't put a dollar amount on that. There's no material good in the world. There's nothing in the creation. The creation itself does not compare to the worth of Christ, and yet that's what you gave us. It's indescribable, and we thank you for it. We thank you for that grace. I ask that you would continue to work in our hearts by your grace. Lord, I thank you for the many faithful believers in this church who have over and over and over again given gladly and sacrificially and generously, both through the vehicle of, of giving to the church and its budget, but also as they give in ways that nobody sees, in secret, unmarked envelopes, a meal that's dropped off. I thank you, Lord, because I do see that heart in this church. There's no rebuke in this message today. But Lord, there is an opportunity for us to grow in grace. So I pray that you would, regardless of what happens, the outcome of our decision, I pray that you would move our hearts one degree closer to that heart you want us to have, that we would grow in, in zeal for good works, that we would grow in our love for you, our love for others, that we would be a church like the Macedonian believers that is marked by a glad generosity, no compulsion, no reluctance. I do pray that you'd give us wisdom collectively as a body, that if it's your will for us to give to this opportunity at Countryside, our sending church, pray that if that's your will, you would give us a united heart in that matter. You would give us a united spirit. And Lord, if you would have us to do something else with it, we will submit to that and we will gladly receive your providential leading through whatever the outcome of the vote may be. But I pray, Lord, that you would unite our hearts together and that the desire the culture, the heartbeat of this church would truly be a God-centered approach to giving. So we pray that you do this work by your grace and your saints for your glory. Amen.